south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 295, covering the week of January 31st through February 4th, 2022. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. The YouTube page is great because, of course, you've got all kinds of material there. Our lectures, you've got the podcast there, you've got our Abbeville, uh, Abbeville U videos. We've got some really good stuff, and, of course, we're going to try to do more of that this year. And that said, if you like all those videos, all that stuff is free of charge, but if you like them... Maybe you want to consider donating to the Institute so we can keep those things going. We do exist on your generous contributions alone. So those videos are expensive to make. We need money to do it. And so if you like them and you like the podcast and you like the website, all that stuff costs money to do as well. Please consider a tax deductible donation to the Institute. It is a great way to show people you are interested in exploring what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. We do appreciate all of your support. Any support you can give, you can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. Just click on that Donate tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. All of our social media accounts are available there as well. Just at the top of the page, just click on that social media account. If you're tired of Facebook, head over to Gab. It's where we are, um, and we do appreciate your support there too. Also, click on that button that says Download Our Free Mobile App, our app. You can get it on the go. You get Abbeville Institute on the go. It goes right to your phone. Just go to your uh, Google Play or your Apple Store, and you can download the Abbeville Institute there. That does cost money for us to do, but you get it free of charge. You get the lectures, our podcast. It does have a link to the website. If you want to read articles on the app, you can do that too. But it is free to get the app, so go ahead and do that. Also, click on the Shop tab. You can wear some Abbeville Institute apparel. You got, we've got our logos, high-quality embroidered stuff. You've got that there at the Abbeville Institute as well. So lots of great ways to support the Institute. And as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Share our articles around social media. We may not have Facebook. You probably have Facebook. So share the articles there. And then people can come out and, and like us and follow us there. Go over to Gab, though. I mean, this is something you can do. But share these articles around. Let people know you like what we're producing at the Institute. That's how we get more people interested in what we're doing. You have friends. You have colleagues, people that are interested in this. We can't just be, a, you know, the, the Institute itself needs your help, financial help, your help and support. All of these things are vital. And, of course, we appreciate all you can do for us. This is something we have to do together. It's not something we can do alone. Uh, the Southern tradition is worth preserving. It is a great part of the American experience. And as we're looking at all the problems of America today, as we're talking about all the things, and people look at this, left and right, right? I mean, this is not just people on the, on the left or people on the right. I mean, most of the people that listen to this show are on the right, right? But people on the left are looking at this and saying, gosh, this thing is backwards. This thing is broken. One of the things they don't realize is people on the left, Thomas Jefferson said some of the things, the same things they're saying. They just didn't look at the state as the way to solve these problems. So, for example, the Occupy Wall Street people are just confused as to what they really... They shouldn't be looking at Marx. They should be looking at John Taylor of Caroline, who said these things back in the 18th and 19th centuries. 19th century, you look at Tyranny Unmasked. Great book. An indictment of 
the Hamiltonian system. Right? So, I mean, this is, this is important stuff. We have to think about this Southern tradition and what it offers. We have a very prominent Hollywood actor coming out yesterday as I'm, as I'm doing this and saying, you know, I don't want to be in the United States with you anymore because he's a leftist. I want to be in my own place. You right-wingers go your own way. Hey, look, that sounds like a, that's the Southern tradition, right? This is decentralization. It's the Declaration of Independence. These are things we talk about, right? So this is good stuff. We all know, and I've said this before, oh, well, the Southern tradition is all race and slavery. This is what the dopes, this is what the, the idiots will tell you. It's all about race and slavery. Even on the right, people get into that nonsense too. There's so much more to it. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about any of those things. We talk about a tradition. There are things in a tradition you may not want to hang on to. And clearly, we're not trying to hang on to slavery in the United States or segregation in the United States. Those things are gone and buried. Good riddance. What we're trying to do is talk about the things that we can do that will make people live better and happier lives if they just follow this Southern tradition. The idea of agrarianism, self-determination, independence for a person and place. Finding the beauty in things. And the Southerners, Southerners are certainly not alone in all this, but some of these things held on to longer than others. Music, literature, poetry, great stuff that comes out of the South and about a people. A love for place, a love for hearth and family. Those are important things that the Southern tradition offers. And I've said it so many times. Here we are on podcast number 295. If, you've, if you want to go back and get all the old stuff, I mean, it's out there, right? We've got it all out there. If, you're at, if, you've, got the, if you've downloaded uh, the app, it's all there. If you subscribe to it on, say, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can go back and get all the old episodes. So they're all out there, right? They're all on the website, too. You can get them all there, too. And if you want to share them around, that's what you can do. You go to the website, look up the podcast, and share the link with your friends. It takes you out there. You can download that podcast. You can share it around. You can do all those things. So we've talked about this a lot. I've said in this podcast before, the South is America. The South was America. This interpretation of what America was. Jefferson was the symbol of America. Daniel Boone, George Washington, these people, symbols of America. More than anything, Hamilton, this is the Hamilton thing. Hamilton was never the symbol of America. We might have gotten to a Hamiltonian America, but he was never the symbol of America. Jefferson was. Daniel Boone was. David Crockett was. Andrew Jackson was. George Washington was. Even Lincoln, born in Kentucky, always kind of was considered this border state Southerner. There's a great essay. I think it's by Bradley T. Johnson. He points this out. The North wouldn't have won the war without the South. Look at George Thomas or Lincoln or some of the other individuals that were Southerners that were actually defeating the South, right? So the South is this important part of, of the American character, and it needs to be preserved. So let's talk about that in this week. And I actually want to start with a Tuesday article by Barbara Marthal. Barbara Marthal, if you go out and look at our YouTube channel, she's presented at our conferences. She's an African-American woman. Uh, she loves the South. She loves being from the South. She loves being a Southerner. Her story is interesting. She starts out very left-wing, uh, you know, actually gets involved in some of that, and uh, then, but realizes that her story is more complex, and she often talks about this book uh, about black property owners in the, in the post-bellum South. And, of course, the book is, is uh, it's, it's, when you read it, you see there are some things, horrible things done to these people, without question. A lot of tension in the South after the war is over and things that are going on. And of course, this you can't you can't deny these things happened. 
Uh, but Marthol has done some genealogical research and figured out that she was always told her name Marthol came from her slaveholding family, but that's actually not the case. In fact, she's found that her ancestors, people of color, were actually slave owners. So the piece is entitled, I guess I won't get any reparations, because here she is, part of a slave-owning family, the Marthols, who were Creoles, essentially, or you know, people of color in New Orleans and around that area. This is her family. And she's saying, look, if we just dig down deep enough, you're going to find this. You're going to find this complexity in the South. And for people, this is real reconciliation. When she sent me this piece, I, I, I wrote her back and I said, thanks for this. This is real reconciliation. This is people figuring out that there's a lot of complexity to the South. And Southerners, regardless of race, have a lot more in common than they do with Northerners on a lot of things. And so when, if this was the story, if this was the story being told, hey, look at this. What about all these black slave owners in New Orleans? What about all this going on? Um, and of course, there was a book written about this in South Carolina as well. What about all the black slave owners in South Carolina? And they weren't owning slaves just because they uh, simply wanted to uh, keep their family members out of slavery. No, no. They were owning slaves because they wanted to make money. You look at someone like Horace King, who was, lived in Columbus, Georgia, was freed, right? And then essentially took slaves under his tutelage and taught them skills. He actually learned skills, engineering skills, as a slave. Well, how's he going to do that unless he's taught, right? We have, and we've talked about it all on this podcast and on the website, all the different nuances of Southern history. It's not just so black and white. But all you get from things like Roots and 12 Years a Slave and from, you know, Hollywood and all the leftist media and even people like Wayne Allen Root, the Southerners are evil. Confederates are evil. This is such a stupid statement. It doesn't make any sense. If the Confederates were evil, then so were the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, the West Africans, the French, the English, the Russians, the Cherokee, the Comanche, the Creek, the Choctaw. The Apache, I mean, the Sioux, go down the line, right? All the evil people in the world then, the Chinese, West African, or I'm sorry, East African Muslims, all evil people because slavery, the Aztecs, the Mayans, slavery has been practiced since the earliest days of human history. And there's a, there's a book, um, about the West African slave trade, written by a man named Thornton, that just blows apart this narrative. This is all about white supremacy, and uh, in fact, it's the it's the Africans that controlled the trade, the terms of the trade. They acquired the slaves. They controlled the prices. They controlled everything. This is an academic book. I think it's published by Oxford University Press. Academic book, right? This is not something that you know some crazy right-winger wrote to try to justify something else. No, no. And he actually writes in the beginning, in the introduction of the book, he says, I understand what I'm doing here, and I don't want this to be used incorrectly, but this is what the evidence shows. This is all the evidence. And he actually wrote it as a book to be very uh, pro-African societies because they weren't victims. They controlled everything. They controlled it. This is essentially what Fogel and Engerman said in Time on the Cross, Right? It wasn't written to be a book that was pro-slavery. And this is what everyone gets. Oh, I guess you're pro-slavery. He said, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. When you look at what how history is written, if you look at uh, Urich B. Uh, Phillips, who said uh, slaves essentially were unproductive, 
horrible labor force. He's saying time on the cross shows that they weren't. They actually are very productive, hardworking people. That was what he wanted to drive home with the book. Not that slavery was great, but what you get out of it, of course, in a comparative analysis, and he, he go, they go through great pains to say, well, slavery was bad. But what you get out of it when you compare it to labor situations in, in London and in Europe, well, even wage uh, factory workers in the North, there's a lot of similarities here. And maybe this is more complex than what it's own. And this is the kind of stuff, Martha's piece, Barbara Martha's piece, is the kind of stuff that really drives home this real reconciliation, Booker T. Washington kind of reconciliation, not, uh, and, and not you know, some kind of um, condemnation of the South. And this is exactly what the modern Wokies don't want. This is David Blight. His whole book about race and reunion is an anti-reconciliation book. That's the whole point of the book. Reconciliation was bad. Eric Foner, the second American revolution. Reconciliation was bad. Doing all of that was bad because it stopped this Marxist revolution that we're going through, right? It stopped this very left-wing push of the United States. It stopped it in its tracks. Reconciliation, though, is what Americans wanted. North and South, the majority of Americans, this is what they wanted. They wanted to put down the sword. They wanted to put down the rifle. They wanted to put down the cannon. And they wanted to shake hands across the chasm and say, Hey, uh, Billy Yank, you fought hard. Johnny Reb, you fought hard. We, we had differences of opinion on the Constitution of the United States and, and what the Union meant and what states could do. We had differences that the Union needed to be preserved. We put it back together again, but you're going to be what you are, and we're just going to let you be, right? This was Lincoln's position at the end of the war. Essentially, it's Andrew Johnson's position. With malice toward none, with charity for all, it is strive to bind up the nation's wounds. What's happened? Well, wokeism is in contradiction to that. There's no binding up the nation's wounds there. It's opening the wounds. It's opening the wounds and keep scraping them. Marthal is pushing real reconciliation. That's why I love the peace. And then you have the piece on, on Monday, the flight from Freedom Seed. As we've gotten this, this, very, this attack on the South, you have one man, a blue-collar guy from Alabama, decides he's going to walk the Confederate flag 600 miles. And he's met along the way by people like Ben Cooter Jones, who's a supporter of, of uh, our work, and he, he's a good man, um, you know, uh, just a great guy, uh, Ben Jones. And... Uh, you know, spoken at our conferences before, wonderful man. I, I can't say enough about Ben Jones. He's a super nice guy. But if, I, I saw you know, back in uh, several years ago, he went on TV uh, when the Confederate flag, I think this is after the Charleston shooting, and he came on to defend the flag. And you have this little uh, blonde twit and some other guy on there. I think it was an African-American guy. And, and they just were rude, disrespectful. And Jones was saying things like, ma'am, sir, I can't hear you. Can you? But rude. Rude to the man. This is they're Yankees, right? This is what the Yankee does. Um, so this is real reconciliation, and real reconciliation is carrying. They say, "Look, I'm a Southerner." He met people along the way and had conversations with people. It's a great little. It's a privately published book. Gerald uh, Lafergie wrote wrote the little review of this, and uh, just a great great story about somebody who just wanted to do something because he thought, "Well, you know, I'm tired of people picking on the South." And here he is, he goes out and he marches 600 miles to do it. Just beautiful in, its, in a way, to have somebody want, that wants to do that. 
And when you look at Grover Cleveland, Ryan Walters wrote a really great book on Grover Cleveland. If you're interested in this late 19th century, this, uh, this Gilded Age period, Grover Cleveland is, is an important part of understanding reconciliation. First Democrat elected president since 1856. He's elected in 1884. So we go almost 30 years before we have another Democrat elected. And, uh, you know, Johnson, of course, is in office from, uh, from 65 until 69, but um, he's, not, he's not elected. I mean, he's a vice president. People hate the guy. Was he really still a Democrat or not? We could say that, uh, you know, Tilden was actually elected, but wasn't able to serve because of fraud. So that's another thing. But regardless, Grover Cleveland gets into office 1884. He's going to clean up corruption. But Cleveland's strategy was reconciliation. It, at its heart, what he wanted to do was put the United States back together. The Democrat Party was the true national party in America in 1860. Lincoln only got 39.6% of, of the popular vote. What's funny about that is the Lincolnites, many of whom are on the left, not all, I mean, not all, of course, many on the, on the right. Uh, the Lincolnites are quick. There was somebody that, Oh, well, I mean, Lincoln, he, majority rule. Southerners were against majority rule. So if you say, well, wait a second here, uh, it wasn't really the majority. I mean, Lincoln didn't even get 40% of the popular vote. It's not majority. Well, but the Electoral College, he won the Electoral College. This is true. He did win the Electoral College. Uh, without question, that's how the president's elected. But you can't say it was necessarily majority rule. It was sectional rule. It was one party rule and, and a minority of the United States controlling the, the majority. And this is something the lefties get upset about. Right? They get upset about all this stuff. So that's that's an important part of understanding, you know, Grover Cleveland. He was a real majoritarian. Now, in 1888, he actually won the popular vote, but lost in the Electoral College through voter fraud. It's also said that Lincoln won in 1864 through voter fraud, too. <laughs> that if it wasn't for voter fraud, maybe Lincoln doesn't win, and uh, we have... Uh, a different president. We have President Seymour, right, in 1864. Possibly. Or President McClellan, I'm sorry, in 1864. Uh, possibly. Uh, maybe McClellan wins in 1864. Seymour opened in 68. Maybe McClellan wins in 64. I don't know. Um, if, if we don't have voter fraud. You know, we know a lot of, a lot of people, and this is when you read uh, you know, James McPherson's For Cause and Comrades, he always says, well, a major, uh, vast minority or a large minority of America supported George McClellan. And he's basing that, of course, on votes. A large minority. How do we know it wasn't actually the majority at times, but yet because of voter fraud or other things, they were pushed to the minority position? How do we know? He talks about in the Union Army that these minority people. But what's interesting about that, I mean, he's saying this is a minority, is it? Are these letters indicative of the minority or the majority? Was the majority of the Union Army in favor of abolition or was the majority in the Union Army in favor of simply preserving the Union? I think that the latter is probably true, not the former. And we don't, we don't find many abolitionists in the Union Army. This is what William Marvel pointed out in his Lincoln's Mercenaries. Now, wait a second here. There was some, some pretty dedicated abolitionists, but most of the people signing up, they needed a job. You had a terrible economic depression. These were laborers, people that were working. They couldn't get a job. So, hey, I can go get a meal and a uniform and some money, and I can go fight for them. I'll do it. I need a job. 
So th there's a lot of complexity here. And of course, Cleveland's southern strategy was to unite the United States. Put people like Thomas Byard as Secretary of State, one time ambassador to Great Britain, but uh, or you have Lamar as a Supreme Court justice. I mean, this, the idea was to put the United States back together and heal it, really heal the United States, and of course, on Jeffersonian terms. That's why Cleveland is so important for understanding this real Jeffersonianism in America. And it's why I love talking about Grover Cleveland. Of course, I wrote about Grover Cleveland in my nine presidents who screwed up America and four who tried to save her. He's one of the four that tried to save her. So if you've never gotten that book, pick it up. It's really good. I might say so myself. Um, one of, it's my best-selling book of all time. It is, it is a very popular book. Um, but we have, we have, of course, this great piece by, Grover, uh, by Ryan Walters on Grover Cleveland and his, um, his positions on the South. And then we had a really great piece on Thursday about Emmy Bradford. And this is written back in 1982 by Forrest McDonald and Clyde Wilson. Now, everyone's familiar with Clyde Wilson, I'm sure, if you listen to this podcast. You know Clyde Wilson, uh, the editor of the John C. Calhoun Papers till he retired and finished that work up and then, of course, retired a couple of years after that. But uh, he was my advisor in graduate school. Um, so Clyde Wilson is such an important part of the Institute and also important part of Southern history. You can't get, a, you can't get around that. And uh, Forrest McDonald, who uh, actually, when I was an undergraduate, my advisor as an undergraduate, was one of his students. And uh, he, of course, died a few years back. We had a nice uh, tribute to Forrest McDonald on the website. And um, Forrest McDonald's a great scholar of the founding period. And they're writing about Emmy Bradford, who also was a scholar of the founding period. And these essays were about a couple of, written on, in honor of a couple of books, A Worthy Company, which is uh, now The Founding Fathers, is the title of that book. And then A Better Guide Than Reason, Studies in the American Revolution. So McDonald reviewed A Worthy Company and Clyde A Better Guide Than Reason. Bradford died far too, too young. And, but what he did, I think, more than anything else, and what McDonald and Wilson point out in this essay, is show that the American founding was not this radical, left-wing push for equality. It was, I mean, Bradford took Jaffa to task, Harry Jaffa to task on this, the heresy of equality, capital E. This is what, I mean, Jaffa said equality is a, is a conservative principle. And Bradford said, there's nothing, that's, that's just bunk. It's not true at all. We can talk about equality with a lowercase e, but not equality with a capital E. And this is, what, this is what Jaffa was talking about. Because that's what it naturally leads to. But what Bradford liked about the founding generation was their moderation in so many ways. You know, George Washington, the conservative. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, the conservative. This is what Bradford said about John Dickinson. Quote, an instance of Dickinson's protective concern for institutions rooted in place and history, grown not made, is his constant reference to the advantage of giving influence in the Congress and in other features of the fundamental law to the 13 state legislatures. With many of his associates, he foresaw the ominous prospect of a greedy proletariat in America's future, a propertyless mass ready to devote itself to properties of other and better men. But he also agreed with the decided anti-federalists that Concentrated national authority might readily be converted into an instrument for creating an artificial aristocracy of placemen, 
friends of the administration in power made wealthy by economic privilege and sponsorship. I think Dickinson knew exactly what was going to happen. He's looking at the political class today and saying, whoa, this is bad. And this is Bradford titled A Better Guide Than Reason from what John Dickinson said in the Philadelphia Convention. If you haven't read John Dickinson, you should. And here's Bradford, a Southerner, admiring this, this man from Pennsylvania. Now, Dickinson also called Delaware home. And his only surviving property is in Delaware. It's a plantation he owned in Delaware. Dickinson at one time was a slave owner, but freed his slaves. He was a Quaker. Uh, But his plantation is a beautiful little place. It's near Dover. If you ever go to Dover, Delaware, it's a beautiful little plantation. Uh, Near the Air Force Base, near the the center of town. I mean, Dover's not a big place. In fact, the the green area uh, there in, in Dover, if you ever get to Delaware and you go to the capital, Dover, and you go to where they have the government. It's a beautiful little square. It's a green. It's beautiful. Uh, I mean, idyllic in so many ways. And, uh, you know, Dover, Delaware is an interesting place. Uh, And, of course, you can go visit Dickinson's plantation. Look, I would recommend going to Dover, Delaware at some point in your life and seeing the capital there and going to Dickinson's plantation. It's a neat little place. So you have that. Uh, and then, of course, you have Clyde Wilson writing about Bradford and what he said about the American founding. He said, under Bradford's direction, we can grasp for ourselves the identity of the American people at the founding of, of the republic, free and clear of the obfuscations and misrepresentations piled up by succeeding generations of partisans. He has made it possible for us to see clearly for the first time in more than a century the nature and import of that process by which the scattered English inhabitants of North America articulated themselves into a Republican realm. He tells us in a full-blooded and circumstantial account what our forefathers were like, what they believed and why, what they meant and what they did not mean in the great documents to which they pledged their lives, fortunes, and honor. And I think this is true. Bradford, in his original intentions, which is very good, I read that as an undergraduate. It was a hard book to get through as an undergraduate, but uh, it's a good book. Um, And what this actually meant, what the Constitution meant, Bradford wrote essays. He didn't really write books uh, in, a, in a comprehensive way. He wrote essays. And these essays compiled and collected became good books. Original Intentions is that way. The Founding Fathers is that way. A Better Guide Than Reason is that way. Remembering Who We Are is that way. These are all great books. And if you're looking at people in the 20th century that did great work on the South. You have, of course, Bradford. You have Richard Weaver. You have the agrarians. This is all part of the Southern tradition. You have Clyde Wilson, Forrest MacDonald. Great. Douglas Southall Freeman, Clifford Dowdy. These are, these are great historians. Lion Gardner Tyler. All part of this long-standing under, uh, undertaking to present Southern history and the American tradition in a way that's free from the stupidity of the modern left. So I love these two essays by MacDonald and Wilson. And anything that Clyde does, of course, we have hundreds of essays on the website that are published by Clyde. If you just go to the search box on the website, put in his name. It's going to come up with all kinds of stuff. And under publications, we have, if you click on that little drop-down tab, there's review posts. There's the Clyde Wilson Library, which has a lot of stuff in it. Of course, the blog. 
we also have, people have asked before, what are some good books on this or this topic? If you go to that publications tab on the website and you scroll down on, on the drop-down menu, it has recommendations, and we have something there for books. Now, we, this is, uh, we haven't updated it in a while, but this is a good list of books to read just to get started. And we're going to do something, I think, different on the website in the near future. We have a Start Here button. Know the Southern tradition. Start with these things. These few articles, these books, it'll get you started. This is where you begin. And so that's a, and of course, if you give us an email address at the Abbeville Institute website, we'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition, which is also a good starting point. If you're listening to this, maybe you've already gotten it, but if you haven't, get it free of charge. You can also buy it on Amazon if you want, but free of charge. By the way, Amazon, speaking of Amazon, make us your Amazon smile. Preferred 501c3 charity. That way you can, every time you shop at Amazon, you give us a few pennies. It's great. Painless for you. Painless. And finally, of course, we wrap up the week with another installment in Clyde Wilson's series. This is part 18, Southern Poets and Poems. This is Henry uh, Roots Jackson. And you look at these poems. You look at the first two in particular, the red old hills of Georgia, and the mountains of Georgia in Georgia. A love of place. This is what Bradford talked about with Dickinson. It works together. It works together. And it's so important to understand that love of place, what the South meant for people as they were fighting and dying for it. Nobody was running up charging cannons in 1863 and getting their guts blown out to hold people in bondage. That's just stupid. They were fighting against their own enslavement, what they saw as an invading army. Just as no one in 1777 or 1778 was doing the same thing, running, charging a cannon, getting their guts blown out for slavery. They were doing it for independence. It's the same thing. People, The fact is people can't get this. Because they look at, oh, that's a slaveholding republic. So was the United States in 1777 and 1778. In fact, very few states. And at that point, 1776, there were no non-slaveholding states in the United States. It wasn't until after you got the Massachusetts Constitution and a, and a court decision that made slavery illegal. But John Adams... And his original draft of the Massachusetts Constitution was a pro-slavery document. So there were no non-slaveholding states then. But we overlooked that. Now, the 1619 Project doesn't, because they're upset about that. But regardless, this is why uh, these, these things are so important. These poems, this literary tradition, this music tradition, uh, understanding reconciliation, it matters. And it's why we talk about it so much here. So I hope you enjoyed this Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. Good day.